This morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 through 35. We're looking at the second half of this chapter, calling this uh, sermon The Lord's Side, which we will see momentarily. Before we get into it, I want to tell you a quick story uh, of something that happened uh, two weeks ago when, when my family and I were camping. Uh, we were camping up at the, the Redwoods. We were staying in a, a KOA campground in Crescent City. And um, the kids were meeting some other kids on the playground and that sort of thing. And, and Emmy, my daughter, met this girl. And uh, they exchanged names and ages, all the normal things that kids do. And then the next question that she asked kind of surprised Emmy. And she said, are, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? And Emmy said, yes. And then uh, as Emmy was telling us this story, she said, and you're never going to guess what she asked me next. Uh, and so we said, oh, okay, go ahead. And she said, the girl said, does your mom wear earrings? And Emmy said, yeah. And, and the girl said, Christians don't wear earrings. <laughs> and then she said, and then she said, uh, does your mom wear makeup? And I said, oh, yeah, not a ton, but a, a little. And she said, and, and she didn't, she, and then Emmy said, she just didn't say anything. She just kind of stared at her. Um, but they started playing together because uh, kids can have awkward conversations like that and still continue a relationship. Uh, so they started playing together and they were doing some cartwheels and some back handsprings and that kind of thing. And this girl was really good at them. And so Emmy, Emmy just trying to be, be friendly, she said, boy, you're really good at gymnastics. And the girl stopped and turned and looked at her and said, Christians don't do gymnastics. Um, so we thought that was, I mean, hilarious, uh, really funny that the that the pastor's kid got out religious on the playground. I told him, I mean, that might be the first time, first and only time that happens in your life. Um, but it was interesting to me. It made me, really made me think, you know, I, I don't know what um, denomination this girl's family was from um, or, or if she was just making this stuff up. But I think it does kind of reflect... Um, a certain strain of Christian legalism that, that still persists in, in our world today. There's, we still see Christians who hold on to these legalistic tendencies, this form of outward righteousness. Um, and, and many Christians, I think, typically think of the Old Testament that way. They think of the laws and all these things and the law of Moses and all the ceremonial laws and go, boy, that's what it was like back then. They had these real strict laws that they had to follow um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that most of the time, that's not what, what they're violating. And in this, in this passage in particular, the, what we looked at last week, uh, where they make this golden calf and start worshiping it, uh, this was not some, uh, you know, really strict, uh, nitpicky, legalistic kind of thing. This wasn't uh, an obscure law. These were, these were numbers one and two, and, and they really didn't have a lot of law at this point. They had some pretty simple things, and, and primarily the Ten Commandments. And, and the thing that they violate to begin with here are really just the first two commandments, right? You shall have no other God before me. You should not make a carved image. They violate both of those as they, they make this golden calf. That's, that's rules one and two. Uh, and what we see surprisingly is that these breaking those first two laws leads them to break all these other laws. So we're going to see that today. Um, that they, they start with breaking these simple rules and then they really go off the rails altogether. So let's, uh, let's get into it here. We'll start with uh, down the mountain, right? Moses is coming uh, down the mountain. God's informed him at this point uh, of what the Israelites have done. And now he's got to come down the mountain. Let's get into it. Verses 15 through 24. 
Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. All right. A couple things from this passage so for us to, to highlight, to break down a little bit. First off, Joshua, right? We can't forget that Joshua was on the mountain with Moses. Um, we don't know how close he was to Moses' encounters with God. It seems that he wasn't there, like, right with him. Uh, you know, maybe he kind of kept the camp while, while Moses came at, uh, at night to, to rest. Um, and he was kind of there helping him and ministering to him and preparing meals and that sort of thing uh, as possible. Um, but he certainly understood what was happening, right? He knew that Moses was meeting with God face-to-face. Uh, -face. Perhaps they even discussed the things that God had told Moses during the day when he came uh, back to their camp at night. Um, this was a powerful and important training for his future leadership, right? How would Moses handle the biggest crisis of his life? This is going to be the biggest crisis Moses ever has to deal with. And he has to deal with a lot, but I really think this is the biggest crisis. This is what Moses would kind of point to as this is where everything went downhill. And Joshua's going to get to see that. Right? He's going to get to see how does Moses handle it. Um, it's important training for him. We also see Moses' righteous angry, anger. Right? Moses was angry when he came down, hears the sound of the camp, sees them with the calf. He is furious. Um, and, and we might ask, was this righteous anger? Right, and we can see a couple indications that it was righteous anger. That God, first of all, God had been angry, um, so angry that He was ready to annihilate everyone. So, if it's something that makes God angry, it's probably a good indication that it was okay for Moses to be angry about it as well. Um, and and His anger is commensurate, right? And He doesn't sin in His anger. Uh, this is important for us to break down and ask ourselves: How do we know? if our anger is righteous, right? Because it's, it's an important distinction, um, and it's also a dangerous one, right? Because anger is something that can be, uh, it's very powerful uh, in our lives. It can, it can have real impact on our lives, um, and most of the time it's negative. Most of the time it's often even sinful. Um, but there are things that we should be angry about, and so it's important that we kind of break this down and figure out how do we know if our anger is righteous? Well, we have a couple indications. One, is that we should only be angry about the things that make God angry, right? The things that God 
um, is upset about. We have to be be sure we're we're our anger is correctly p- placed. Um, that we're angry about the things that that make God angry. That our hearts break for the things that make God's heart break. That we rejoice in the things that make God rejoice. We want to align ourselves with Him and His truth. We also need to be sure that we direct our anger at the true enemy. So often we we direct we we forget the spiritual realm, right? We forget the the deception of Satan and his demons, um, that that people, sinners, are actively being deceived uh, by Satan. And so we we always have to be sure that we keep that in mind because God, when he can be angry with Pete, with his people, um, his anger is is much more directed at the true enemy and and that's who he's uh, battling most of the time. And for us, we need to be keep that in mind as well that when we see people that are sinning, most of the time, they're non-believers. They're people that, that don't know Jesus' love and forgiveness, and they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And so we need to pray for them. We need to consider that they're being deceived by Satan and his demons, the true enemy. And we need to not sin in our anger, as Moses does here, that he, that he doesn't sin in his anger. This is something that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, where he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And that second half of that, so he talks about be angry but do not sin. Um, and then that second half of that, that passage where he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Uh, he's really talking about not allowing your anger to consume you, right? He's saying, don't go to bed angry. Like, And that that's not even in the... I think it's a good advice in terms of relationships and that sort of thing, but that's not really what he's even talking about here, right? Paul's talking about don't don't go to bed with anger in your heart, or right? Just even against the world or against um, evil that you see in the world. Don't allow that to consume you. Remember that God is in control. Ultimately, he will make justice, that we don't have to, we can be angry about the injustice that we see, but but ultimately he will create justice in the end. And so we can trust him, uh, that he will judge rightly, that he will um, dish out the, the appropriate punishments and, and all those kind of things. And so we can trust him um, with our with the things that make us angry, that he will handle them. So we don't want to allow our anger to consume us. The other thing we see here is the, the broken tablets, right? And it's kind of unclear, did he intend to break the tablets? Did he know that he was going to break the tablets when he threw them? Uh, did he not even think about it? Was he just so angry that he just threw these tablets to the ground and they happened to break? Um, we don't know, but but there's one thing that is, is true is that it's certainly symbolic, um, right? These broken tablets contain the covenant um, that God had made with his people, the, the terms of the covenant. This is how God would have them live because uh, he has rescued them um, and they were going to be his people. Here's how they should live. Um, they had broken those those that covenant by creating this calf and worshiping it and, and all the debauched acts that follow. And so they had broken this covenant. And so the tablets themselves that contain the covenant, they were broken as well. Then we see this really intense scene um, where Moses comes down. He destroys the calf, right? He, he melts it back down. He says he burned it with fire. Well, we know that that would have melted it down. And then he grinds it into a powder and then sprinkles it on the water and makes the people drink it. But that's this extreme, like, here's the consequence of your sin. You drink, taste the bitterness of your sin. Um, he, he, it, it, this is an intense 
scene where he really shows them what he thinks of their calf. Then he moves and he's going to have this conversation with um, Aaron. And we see Aaron's responsibility here. Moses places the responsibility for this sin firmly in Aaron's lap, right? He says, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them, right? He really says, you brought this sin upon them. That's saying, Aaron, this is your responsibility. You were the leader. I left you in charge. Um, and so in failing to deny their request for these idols, Aaron brought this sin upon the people by refusing to stand up for what he knew was right, what he knew God wanted. Uh, he brought this sin upon them. He should have done everything in his power to prevent this from happening, and yet he didn't. And so then we see Aaron's excuses. Right? He blames the people first. He says they're set on evil. You know this. He even tries to, he tries to rope Moses into his feeling. He's like, you know the people. You know how they are. You were leading them for a while. They're, they're set on evil. Um, he passes the buck. He says it's their fault they're, because they're set on evil. Um, and he even has this line about out came this calf. Right? He, he, uh, he tries to say, like, you know, I, I just I, I put the gold in the fire and poof, they're there was the calf. He's d distancing himself from the actual creation of the calf, even though we know from the previous uh, passage that, that he was the one that created it, right? He actually molded it. He actually formed it. Um, but he, he says this line that makes it appear as though it came out fully emerged. And this really points us to, and, and should cause us to think about our own excuses for sin. Because we often want to excuse our sin. We want to pass it off um, and here's a couple things that we see in, in his passage that we also that we see in this passage with Aaron that I think we also can see in our own lives and, and take uh, warning from. First, we see he tries to minimize, right? He minimizes it. He says, you know, don't let your anger burn, Moses. Don't don't overreact. Calm down. This is not a big deal. He tries to make it so it's not such a big deal. Moses shouldn't be angry about it, right? He tries to tell him to calm down. Um, and really that's not the case. This was a big deal, right? This was a big thing. Moses was right to be angry about it. Um, and, and in minimizing our sin, uh, we end up minimizing our Savior. There's this famous quote from, um, from Charles Spurgeon, and he says this. He says, if your sin is small, then your Savior will be small also. But if your sin is great, then your Savior must be great. And he's not making a case there for, you know, hey, go out and, and sin real big so that Jesus will be real big. He's saying, in reality, your, your sin is big. It is a big deal to have rebelled against your creator, to have hurt God, to have hurt other people. Um, and, and so your Savior is great because your sin is great. But when you try to minimize your sin, make it not that big of a deal, what you end up doing is minimizing Jesus. You minimize the sacrifice that he made. You minimize... Um, the power of the cross by, by making it not that big of a deal. And so it's important that we acknowledge the enormity of our sin, acknowledge what it ha the pain that it causes uh, to us, to other people, to God. Um, it's important that we take it for what it is and not try to minimize it. It doesn't really help anything anyway. The other thing we often do and that Aaron does here is blame others, right? He tried to blame the people for his actions. We often try to blame others for what is our responsibility. Um, we have to take responsibility when we repent, right? If we try to continue to, to pass it off on other people, that doesn't work, right? We have, to, we have to take the responsibility for what we have done, even if we were influenced by other people, even if other people encouraged us, 
even if other people pushed us in some way into it, ultimately it's on us. Um, it's important that we not blame others, like, like Aaron does here, right? Aaron tries to say, they made me do it. It doesn't work. It's not, it's not um, helpful for us to blame other people when we can just take responsibility for ourselves. And then lastly, deny, 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 right? Aaron denied that he actually made the calf, right? It, it popped out fully formed. And we often deny uh, what we've done, even if it, especially if it can't be proved. If it can't be proven, if we're not confronted with it, if no one says, you know, I know what you did, here's the evidence. Um, so many of our sins are done in private. So many of them are internal, um, where only we know. And so it's easy for us to just kind of deny it, push it aside, pretend it didn't happen. Uh, but ultimately, God knows. And so there's no, uh, again, there's no benefit to us doing that because God knows the full extent of our sin, even if others don't. So it's important for us to keep this in mind as we come to repent, because the gospel is all about repentance. It's about admitting our sin. It's about admitting our weaknesses, not minimizing them, but, but really examining the full extent of it, not blaming others, but allowing that blame to be put on ourselves, not denying our sin, but taking full responsibility of it so that it can be dealt with. Because only when it, we see it in its, in its fullness, right? Only when we see it for what it really is, can it be fully forgiven, fully taken care of. And so the gospel is the message of no matter how big your sin is, no matter how much it is, Jesus is powerful enough to forgive it, right? That his death on the cross was powerful enough to forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, make us righteous, make us clean as snow, that he can make us pure in the eyes of God. So there's no use, no, no, not, nothing helpful about minimizing, passing the buck, denying our sin, but taking full responsibility of it when we really allow ourselves to do that. Because in reality, none of this helps us internally, right? None of it really helps our conscience. None of it really helps our heart because we know the full extent of our sin. But when we can fully admit it and be fully known and fully forgiven, that's a good feeling. That, that will really truly change our hearts, truly change our souls um, and, and allow us to live the life that God wants for us, right? Because the promise of the gospel is, is forgiveness, is grace, is mercy, is eternal life in the one to come and abundant life now. But that can only be found when we are truly set free from our sin. And that can only happen when we drop our excuses and allow him to see us for what we are and forgive us for who we truly, for what we've truly done. Moving on to the next passage, breaking loose, uh, verses 25 through 29. Um, Moses is going to see further what the people have done. Says this, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side or who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, 
so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. All right, a lot to break down here, even though four short verses, but a lot goes on. First, we see the people had broken loose. And what this indicates is that their, their false worship had led to further rebellion. Um, the people had not stopped at simply violating the first two commandments, right? They, they were worshiping the wrong God. They were worshiping in the wrong way. But that worship in the wrong way w- was evil in itself, right? There was often um, uh, very explicit acts going on, evil things going on, and that would lead to further things, right? And there were people getting drunk, um, and then doing whatever they wanted in the name of worshiping these gods. And so there would have been serious violations, serious pain going on, uh, people being taken advantage of, women, children being harmed. Um, this would have been uh, an outright riot. I mean, just just debauchery all over the place, uh, pain and evil happening all over the camp. Uh, they had broken loose in this crazy Way And this is often how it goes with when we start breaking the rules, when we, when we start rebelling against God, when we start falling back into our sin. We get this idea of, well, I've done one thing wrong. I might as well just go, I might as well just throw it all out and go the other way. Um, you know, we're already in trouble. I might as well keep going. Um, that, that's what happens here, right? They just, they start off with this, this uh, one step and then it just leads to further chaos and rebellion. Um, and so Moses is going to have to deal with it. It's not something that he's going to be able to stop uh, by simply, you know, yelling and, and getting them to, and, and telling them to stop. They are fully into their sin in this, in this really big way. And again, I, I think it's so important that we consider the fact that this is not just, um, you know, oh, breaking some nitpicky rules. This would include um, adultery, um, you know, all kinds of probably theft and, and breaking into homes. I mean, it's like picture, picture the scene after a, a, in, a, in a city after a team wins the Super Bowl, right? It's like there's supposed to be this joyous occasion. Everything is good, um, but these cities get destroyed, right? Storefronts get smashed in, cars get flipped over, um, all kinds of, of crime occurs. That's what you should picture here, right? This is they, they're breaking loose is in, is a, is, this, this term indicates this, this crazy scene uh, where, again, people are being hurt. This is not simply like, oh, they're bowing down to the wrong God. This is, involves all kinds of crime, all kinds of sin um, where people are being hurt. And so Moses has to put a stop to it. So he puts out this cry of who is on Yahweh's side? Who's going to stand up with me against this evil that is going on? Um, and the Levites, the tribe of Levi, respond to Moses' call, right? The Levites are commanded to go around the camp and put down the rebellion by killing those who are leading the rebellion, right? That would be their goal, would be to uh, not just kill everyone, but to kill those who are kind of leading the charge in this rebellion, who are actively hurting people, actively um, rebelling in this crazy way. And so the Levites do what God commanded them and kill about 3,000 men, right? And they end up killing friends and relatives, right? This, this came at a cost to them. This was a painful experience. This was not a joyful, um, you know, bloodthirsty um, thing for them. This was, they were seeing their community devolve into lawlessness, into reckless behavior, uh, into to crime and, and all these things. And so 
they they knew this is what they had to do, but they didn't have any joy in doing it. This wasn't a, uh, yes, let's go out and, and kill these guys. This was painful for them uh, to go and do this thing. This cost them something. And it seems to put the rebellion to an end. And it also, um, it also results in ordination, oddly enough. Right? This, is, this mass execution qualifies the Levites for priesthood. Um, this is quite different than, than my experience of ordination or my experience of uh, seminary. Uh, but before this moment, the priesthood is limited to Aaron and his sons. But yet now, because of what the Levites were willing to do, they're now going to be priests. Their whole tribe is going to be priests because of this incident. This is the inciting incident that, that makes them qualified for the priesthood because they're willing to stand up. They're willing to be on God's side uh, and do this thing that, that costs them something. Um, and so they're going to they're gonna be the tribe of the priests. And this is crucial because what we see here, if we go back to Genesis, if we go all the way back to Genesis, remember um, Levi and Simeon, they're the two um, brothers who go in and commit that, that genocide against the Sheshemites, um, where, where they, they kill them all because of what they did to their sister. Um, and as a result of that, when, when Jacob is giving his prophecies about what his, um, what his offspring are, are going to do, he tells, he says that Levi, Simeon and Levi are going to be scattered throughout Israel, right? That they're going to, their tribes are going to almost disappear because they're going to be scattered throughout the other tribes. Well, this is the fulfillment of that. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. Um, Simeon, his tribe just literally disappears, but the Levites end up getting scattered throughout Israel because they go and serve in, uh, in and among every tribe as priests. Um, and this is this is where that's taken. And we see even here, their willingness to, to bear the sword um, is redeemed, right? Because they did it in this previous case in a, in a negative way, in an evil way. But now here, they're willing to do it in standing up for justice, standing up for what's right, um, really protecting people um, by, by putting down this rebellion. The big question with this passage is, is what does this mean for us? Right? What does this mean for us? Are we to, uh, you know, to take up arms and go, go take out sinners? That's not what this means. Right? This was a specific, uh, specific to the nation of Israel at this time and place. This is something God was doing in the nation of Israel, which was his people, right? The, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. God was on the, meant to be on the throne. Even once a king gets in place, really ultimately God's meant to be on the throne. And so this is specific to them. This is not the call of the church to take up arms and, and go take out sinners. The story of Israel's redemption and sanctification can be read as a metaphor for our own salvation and sanctification. When we think about how do we apply these things to our lives, we have to think of the nation of Israel, really, as a whole, being representative of the Christian's life. Where we've, we've been talking about this, uh, but, and how the, the freedom uh, or the slavery in um, Egypt is kind of metaphorically our slavery in sin. Um, that, that God's bringing them out of Egypt is symbolic of his bringing us out of our sin. That them going through the Red Sea is symbolic of our baptism and now they're wandering in the desert um, and heading for the promised land is is our sanctification process and this is part of that right they're learning god's laws they're they're learning to to fall in line with him they're maybe slipping out of line sometimes falling back into rebellion back into their sinful ways um that they they had learned in egypt and the same happens with us right that we 
we're trying, we're trying to make it to that promise and trying to make it to be sanctified, to be God's people, but we slip up at times, we fall away. And so the question for us is not whether we're, we're willing to resort to violence to stop sinners from without, but whether or not we're willing to deal with our own sin in this way. This is really not a question of what are we willing to do externally, but what are we willing to do internally? This is something else that we've been talking about, that so much of what in the Old Testament, in the, under the Old Covenant is external, becomes internal in the New Covenant. And so this is one of those things, right? That there is this external application here of let's clean up the sin within the camp, let's stop the sin from within the camp, but then that becomes how internally are we willing to deal with our own sin? And, and the author of Hebrews, he really puts it in exactly these terms. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, he says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Right, he's saying here that as we struggle against our own sin within our own hearts, within our own souls, as we fight that battle uh, to, to be sanctified, to not fall back into our sin, to not give in to temptation, that as we fight those battles, have we resisted to the point of shedding blood um, within ourselves? Like, have we become violent with our own sin internally? Are we willing to really struggle against it? How quickly do we give in? Or how much are we willing to stand up against it? So often we can be so aggressive. We can be so aggressive in our judgment against others. And yet very nonchalant about our own sin. Right? We, we see this all the time. We see this all the time with people who can be very judgmental about the sins of other people. And, and the rebellion that they see. And the, the sin that they see. The crime that they see from without and, and look at what hap what's happening out there and look at what's happening to our country uh, and all these things and, and point out externally and go, look at all this sin that I'm seeing. Look at all this, if people would only turn back to God. And yet internally and, and within themselves, that they're not quite living up to it. They're, they're allowing sin in their own life. They're allowing hate. They're allowing, um, you know, idolatry and, and temptation to take over. Um, and within themselves, they're, they're very quick to forgive that and go, well, I'm not perfect. And well, I, yeah, I, I slip up and good thing I'm forgiven and that kind of thing. Um, those are really backwards, right? We really need to be much more aggressive with ourselves than with those outside. Those outside, they're sinners. They're, they don't know Jesus. That's what the message that they need more than anything. Uh, but we can be so nonchalant. Uh, talks about this in Luke chapter 6, verse 42 where it says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of, that is in your brother's eye. Right, Jesus paints this picture of, um, you know, it's like we have this big log sticking out of our eye, and then we're saying, oh, you've got a little something there. And he's saying, you've got to turn to yourself first. That's really what we have to do. Our zeal for righteousness needs to be turned to ourselves primarily and first. That's what we need to do. We, we need to desire righteousness. We need to want that. We need to ask God to help make us more like Jesus. 
It all needs to be done with grace. All needs to be done with mercy. The power of the cross can change our hearts if we let him. But we have to be willing to turn that lens on ourselves more than, more than certainly more than on anybody else. Uh, we need to look internally first and foremost. Last part of this chapter, uh, consequences, verses 30 through 35. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to, the, to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. So it's the next day, right? The dust has settled. Moses goes and addresses his people. He tells them that they had sinned a great sin. And that might ask us, may, may cause us to question, isn't all sin equal? This is something that, that gets talked about quite often, right? Is, isn't all sin equal? Isn't, isn't no, any sin worse than the other? And the answer to that question is kind of yes and kind of no, um, right? All sin is equal in that all, any and all sin makes someone fall short of the glory of God, right? All sin separates us from God. So any amount, we're all equally in need of Jesus' forgiveness, um, everyone is equal in that they have all, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. Everyone is in need of Jesus' forgiveness um, equally. But not all sin has the same earthly consequences, right? Sin has consequences uh, both um, from God in, 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 a, in a more direct way, right? God can might withhold blessing from us. Like we'll see uh, later on, the Israelites will, will not be allowed to go into the promised land. Uh, because they, they sin against God. Moses won't be allowed into the promised land because he sins against God. Um, but there also may be natural consequences to our sin, right? When we, when we sin, when we hurt other people, uh, there may be broken relationships. Um, there might be uh, disease and, and other things that happen just naturally as a result of uh, lifestyle choices and that kind of thing that, that is, is a natural consequence for sin. And so not all sin... All sin is equal in the sense that it all equally separates us from God, but not all sin is equal in the consequences that they create. Um, and many of them, most of them, just being natural consequences um, of, uh, of broken relationships and, um, and, and things like that. But what we see that is that Moses is going to try to make atonement. Um, and, and Moses goes to God and he makes an offer, right? He says that if God will not forgive their sin, he would like to be included in the punishment. He identifies himself with his people. This really shows us Moses' heart, right? I mean, seeing how angry he was about what they had done, right? How he, he grinds the calf into powder and puts on the water, makes them drink it. He has the Levites go and put down the rebellion in this, um, in this violent way, um, we might think well, Moses is just sick of these people. He's just over it. He does not like them anymore. But boy, his heart is with the people. We see really that those things pained him to do. 
Um, he wasn't just out for blood and out for just get rid of them. I'm so angry with them. No, he, he stands here in the gap and, and pleads on behalf of the people and says, if you're going to be done with them, be done with me. That's a powerful statement, how he identifies with the people, wants to be with them. But God responds and essentially says, Moses, um, you don't make the rules, right? He's, he says, I just make the rules. I, I, it's not you. It's I'm the one that's going to make the rules. I'm going to deal with sin, um, and I'm going to deal with sin individually, right? He says, I'm going to deal with each person based on what they've done. As for God's larger plan, he's, it's still in motion, right? He says, Moses got to go and lead the people to the next location. He's saying, we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep on with this plan. Um, I'm going to deal with sin individually. Um, and, and, and that includes, that includes his plans for redemption, his plans for forgiveness. Salvation is still by faith, even here in the Old Testament. And those who continue to put their faith in Yahweh, those who ask for forgiveness, those who turn their hearts to him, even those who participated in this rebellion might find forgiveness, might find grace, uh, might be saved by trusting in God's plan. Right? In the Old Testament, people are saved still by the gospel, just at the point that it's been rolled out. At this point, they only know what God's revealed to them. And those that put their faith in him and his plan will find forgiveness ultimately through the blood of Jesus, even though they don't know his name, even though they've never witnessed his sacrifice. Um, it's still the blood of Jesus that saves um, and the only way people are saved, not through following the sacrifices to a T and not, not in those ways, but by trusting what God has told them. And so there still might be individual people who are saved, but there's also going to be consequences and God's going to send a plague on the people. God punishes the people with a plague. And it's fitting, it's fitting that the people who worshiped in the, in a, in, they went and worshiped in the Egyptian manner that they're going to be punished in the same way that God punished the Egyptians. right? It's really God saying, listen, if you, if you want to do that, if you want to go and worship um, you know, images of calves and, and, and cows and, and all these, these Egyptian gods, if you want to go worship those things, I can deal with you the way that I dealt with the Egyptians. And so they face a plague, people die. But given what God could have justly done, Right? We, we talked about this last week, that God could have justly have said, I'm done with these people. I'm going to start over with Moses. Um, like he proposed to Moses there, he said, let's start over with you. Let me make a new nation out of you. He could have done that. This was still grace. Even with all these punishments that happened, even with the people dying at the hands of the Levites, even with God sending a plague, it's still grace and that there are still so many of them that make it through and continue to thrive. God also points to something important here. He talks about the day of visitation, right? In verse 34, he refers, he's referring to the end times, right? When he says on the day of visitation, I will deal with them. Um, the day of visitation or the day of the Lord, this starts to become a term in the Old Testament. This is maybe the first place that it's mentioned where God starts talking about there is a day of judgment coming. It's not yet, but there is a day of judgment coming um, where God will judge the world once and for all. And only those who have come to Jesus for forgiveness um, will be spared. Right? Only those who have put their faith in Jesus will be spared from his punishment uh, by those who find their righteousness in, in the, in the cro at the cross of Jesus. Let's wrap it up with this. How should we then live? A couple takeaways from today. Number one, do not minimize, blame others, or deny when you are confronted with your sin. That's not a way to deal with it. 
Um, the only way to deal with it is to find and accept forgiveness in Jesus. We want to deal violently with our sin, right? Once we have come to him, found forgiveness, we want to commit ourselves to him in a powerful way. We want to stand up and, and desire to become like him. And that doesn't mean necessarily like, you know, just getting down on yourself and feeling shame and that kind of thing. We always want to find forgiveness in him, but we want to take it seriously. We want to recognize uh, that sin is a reality in our lives and we want to deal with it appropriately. And lastly, we want to come to Jesus for grace, mercy, and forgiveness that we desperately need. We want to come to him, bring our sins to the foot of the cross, confess, repent, follow him in a new way. In just a minute, we're going to remember his broken body and shed blood through communion. Um, and then, uh, and, so I'm going to pray. We'll have a moment for you to prepare your hearts, prepare your elements um, as we listen to some music. And then we'll come back and take communion together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this word this morning. God, uh, there's, there's so much here um, as we watch uh, Moses deal with the fallout of uh, Israel's rebellion. Um, and God, it causes us to think of our own sin and, and our own rebellion, um, the ways that we have fallen uh, at times away from you, the ways where we've not trusted you, the ways that we've tried to take control back from you. God, we want to surrender to you this morning. We want to confess our sins. We want to repent of our sin in their full extent. We don't want to hide anymore. We don't want to minimize or, or blame other people. Um, we don't want to deny our sin, God. We want to admit it in its fullness um, and let you deal with it in the way that only you can. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can find righteousness and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. God, we want to dedicate ourselves to you uh, as we move into this next week. Help us to take this hope that we have um, to the everyone that we meet. God, show us opportunities this week where we might um, share your gospel with somebody. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and breaking it, he blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When they had finished eating, he took the cup and blessing it, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Your grace so free 
Of all the redeemed, yes, we're free.